Psalm 10 tonight. My great uncle uh, loved to watch old, what's uh, you call it, comics, cartoons, things along those lines. He had a quite an extensive collection of them down in South Georgia. A lot of them were lost when there was a flood shortly before he died, but one of the ones that made its way back up to where we were was a series of uh, the old black and white Dick Tracy shows. I don't know if any of you ended up watching those at different points, but if you did, or if you're familiar with sort of those uh, crime dramas of that era, what was one of the mottos or one of the big ideas that they would emphasize in those related to crime and its results? Crime doesn't pay. All right. But a lot of times it looks like it does, right? In the world today, why is it that people who are doing wrong often seem to get away with it, and not just get away with it, but do well? They prosper. And as we look at Psalm 10 tonight, some would see this as a continuation of the ideas of Psalm 9, but we obviously have it as a separate psalm here in our Bibles. And we see David exploring this frustration in detail. He starts crying out to God. He describes what the wicked are like. He talks about their actions. He calls for God's help. And then he expresses confidence that God will answer. And if we summed up what he's saying throughout this psalm, I think we could sum it up this way. God will deliver the humble by judging the proud. But let's see how that phrase can be developed from uh, these 18 verses of Psalm 10. I think in the first two verses, we see David doing something that is probably right for us to do, and that is to question the prosperity of the wicked. Why is it that the wicked seem to be doing well? Why is it that they're getting away with what they're doing? Why is it that they're prospering? Connected with this, he starts out, as we saw Sunday night in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Here it's, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why does God seem distant? And certainly, as we ask this question, we need to do so in a reverent manner, seeking to understand God better, not denying that He's God, that He has the right to uh, orchestrate our lives in ways different than we would expect or plan for ourselves. And we also have to recognize that even as we ask this question, why are you far away, O Lord? we recognize that he's not actually far away. I think about um, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. How did he mock Baal? Baal had to take a break. Baal's really tired. Baal's gone on a trip. He left his voicemail and he's not answering. That was the basic gist of it. What happens? Elijah prays to God. God brings down fire from heaven. And there's an immediate response, not because of Elijah, but because God was showing that 400 prophets of Baal can do whatever they want to get Baal to respond, and he couldn't do it. God restrained Baal, whether he was a demonic spirit or whether it was Satan himself standing behind that false religion. God restrained it such that there was no answer, and God showed that he was the true God to a people of Israel that were going back and forth between who were they really going to worship. And so we have that background when we ask this question, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Because, but what he's doing here, David is describing the way that his experience feels, the way that it seems to him, his perspective on it. 
But then he also identifies the sin of the wicked. Look at the first phrase of verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. So what are at least the two sins that we see here in this first phrase of verse 2? Their first sin is pride. They do this because they think that they are higher than they are and that they're going to get away with what it is that they're doing. So they're characterized by pride. Furthermore, the specific way their pride is shown is by oppression. They hotly pursue the afflicted. Here are people who are downtrodden in some way. Here are people who have some sort of needs and they look for an opportunity and they exploit it. And this is the second way that the wicked are sinful. But then the second phrase of verse 2, you see David saying, God, will you deal with their sin? Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Why? So that they may face punishment and so that their own schemes would be their undoing. We saw this certainly last week in Psalm 9. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. So we see these parallels between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. David again in this psalm is crying out, God, let their own schemes return upon their head. Punish them, because that's what they deserve for their sin. But after he questions the prosperity of the wicked, he considers their relationship with God and contrasts it, I think, with his own. And I think that's also valuable for us to do as well. What is the relationship of the wicked person to God? Is my relationship to God any different? It should be. We see this in verses 3 and 4. He is separated from God. Verse 3, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So we see, first of all, that the wicked boasts of what he wants versus what God wants. It says the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. And what we want is not always bad, but when we want it in, without any regard for God's purpose, God's plan, God's commands for us, then often it is in contrast, in opposition to God, particularly when it steps outside of the boundaries that God has set up. The wicked person says, what do I want without any concern for what has God said I should or shouldn't do? And so he sets up his desires in opposition to God. This is expressed not only in his internal thinking, but also by what he says. The second half of verse 3, the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Curses could be blasphemes. It could be uh, just speaks ill of. And when it says he spurns the Lord, he rejects that God has control over his life. He rejects that he needs God. And we see that certainly uh, increasing in verse 4. The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. Now we, we ask ourselves, in what sense does everyone seek God? It's not talking in a, in a sense of salvation or that we have some innate goodness that enables us to find God if we just look hard enough. It's rather that we know there's a God and rather than seeking after him, we do everything we can to push him aside, to ignore him, to reject his authority. So when it comes to things like the truth that God is the creator, what do we do? We come up with all sorts of alternate explanations for why the world is the way that it is that relieve us of our responsibility to obey the God who made all things. 
When it comes to right and wrong, we come up with explanations that say, well, these are societal conventions. These are uh, things that people have taught their kids growing up. We just sort of need to cast those things off. They're, they're not, we can't attribute them to God. They're just sort of you know, things that are a function of where we are in our lives. We come up with all sorts of reasons not to seek after God. And what drives this or what characterizes this it says the haughtiness of his countenance. Again, pride. I don't need God. I'm not going to follow God. I don't want to obey God. This is summed up in verse 4, the second phrase. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And so the wicked man constantly tries to ignore God. What is the result of that sort of approach to life? The ultimate result is what we see in Genesis 6, which is, the thoughts of every man's heart was only evil continually. And they're running away from God. I don't want this master. Where do they end up? They end up enslaved to sin, going their own way, finding the consequences and the results of that sort of a life. And so we question, why would such people prosper? We see some of their internal thoughts and motivations expressed in their words as well as from their hearts. And then we see this extended discussion of what the lifestyle, the actions, just how would we look at the person who is wicked? We see this in verses 5 through 11. What is the first thing that characterizes a wicked person? He thinks that no one can touch him. We see this in verses 5 and 6. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. So what does he think? He thinks, nobody can touch me. I've got money. That trumps everything else. What it says in verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Now we have to be careful because there is a connection between prosperity and God's blessing, but it's not always a one-to-one -one relationship. There are those who are faithfully following God who have nothing and who seem to have trouble without end from the world's perspective. There are those who are living a perverse and evil lifestyle who, have, who are millionaires, who have everything that we think we might want. So when we see his ways prosper at all times, it raises this question. For the Israelite, when God's blessing was largely connected with physical benefits in the context of a spiritual relationship, or to put another way, when they were right with God, God had said He would bless them materially. You see this in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses. If you obey me, you'll have children, you'll have crops, you'll dwell in the land that I've given to you. If you don't, all the opposite will be true. You'll have enemies, you'll have sickness, all of these things. In that context... Here's someone who doesn't fit the mold. Here's an evil person that has what you would think would be a mark of God's blessing. And so the wicked man could say, I must deserve what I have, so what I'm doing is okay. He also thinks in the second part of verse 5 that because I don't see God doing anything about it, I'm fine. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. 
God is just, but because the wicked person in this moment doesn't see God's justice moving to bring down calamity on his head, he thinks, I'm getting away with it, God doesn't care, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And so he has this mocking response toward anyone who would oppose him. And this has to do with his view of not just the present, but also the future. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. It's interesting how many times a the things will always be the way they've always been attitude characterizes people who don't believe in God. In this sense, if there is no divine intervention, then we can look at the past and the present and the future and we can predict all these things because there's no extra variables to affect what's going to happen next. But if there's a God who can step in and say, this has happened up to this point and it's done and it's not happening anymore, that throws off all our calculations. So humanly speaking, what he's saying makes sense. I've been fine so far, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and this is the guaranteed result. But that perspective excludes the reality of a God who brings judgment. This is why people like to deny the existence of a worldwide flood. We don't want to say there was any such thing as Noah's flood because it interrupts our calculations of how life will be based on how life has been. If the thoughts of every man's heart can be evil continually and God doesn't do anything and God doesn't do anything and for a hundred years Noah's building the ark and the flood doesn't come, people are standing back mocking Noah. Why are you building this boat? Nothing's going to happen. This is foolishness. God sends the flood and their perspective is proved wrong. And that's what's happening in verse 6. That's the perspective of the wicked person, but it doesn't fit with what we know about God and his judgment that he's poured out at different points in history. We look at verses 7 through 10 about specific ways he behaves wickedly. First of all, in his speech, his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we can see what sort of person this is by the fact that the way he talks is to blaspheme God, to speak ill of other people, to deceive people, to use words to control people, to be characterized by mischief and wickedness. What sort of person is this? It's someone whose heart is full of evil. Which is why, incidentally, in Ephesians it says, put off those ways of talking and put on speech that honors God, that builds people up, that edifies people, because if you really belong to God, that's what should be flowing out of your life not all these ways of speaking. Not only is his wickedness characterized as speech, but also his actions. He plots against those who are innocent and who are weak. Verse 8 through 10 describes this. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. So what does he do? He looks for vulnerabilities that he can exploit to his own advantage. And this is described in terms of a robber by the street, in terms of a lion watching the, the uh, herd of gazelle or whatever in Africa. 
He looks for the ones that are young, that are sick, that are vulnerable, and he goes after them. He seizes them. And when it says in verse 10, the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones, uh, potentially you could think that this would be like his um, companions in evil, but it may very well just be a, a plural that's emphasizing the fact that here's his strength that brings down those who are weak. So again, he's, he plots. He seeks to take advantage of those who are innocent, those who are weak. And then again, he advances this perspective, verse 11, that God's going to let him off the hook. Even if there is a God, he's not going to call me into account. Look at verse 11. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. There might be a God, but he doesn't care. There might be a God, but he's not watching. Why should I change what I'm doing? No one can touch me. I'm secure. I'm good. I'm prospering. Why should I change what I'm doing? This is the attitude of the wicked person before God's judgment comes. And so what's David's response? Verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. And so we see in verse 12 that there's this sense that God will not forget his people, but part of God not forgetting his people is that there is a right and proper place for us to call out to God and to say, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Now, obviously, hand is not just his hand, but it's kind of the idea that we see throughout the Psalms. Here's the arm of the wicked. Here's the hand, the arm of God. Which one is stronger? God's, clearly. And so he's saying, God, in your strength, act to help your people. What would this mean? That he's not forgetting those who are afflicted who are persecuted, who are cast down by the wicked, who are behaving in arrogant pride. Furthermore, we should recognize that God sees what we think is hidden. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. The wicked person thinks that when God says, you will reap what you sow, it's not going to happen. Or... It happened for that guy, but it won't happen for me. And this is the lie that we tell ourselves when we get into various patterns of sin. I can do this, and we do it once, we do it twice, we do it half a dozen times, nothing happens. Why not keep doing it? Nothing's going to happen. And for the wicked person, this lie is so entrenched in his thinking that it controls him, and he thinks it's never going to happen. This is the attitude in 2 Peter 3. Where is the promise of His coming? You said your God's coming back. You said there's a day of judgment. I don't see it. So they mock those who follow God. What does verse 14 do to correct our perspective? God does see it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. In a certain sense, both the wicked person and David are both looking at history and using it to predict what will happen. But one of them is a perspective that says, the only thing that affects my success is me. The other one is a perspective that says, the thing that affects my success or the outcome of this situation is God. 
So the wicked person says, what have I done and what has been the result and what will I keep doing? The righteous person says, what has God done? What can he do now and what will he keep doing in the future? God has in the past seen mischief and vexation toward those who are afflicted and he has acted. Let me just give you a quick example of this. Ahab sees Naboth's vineyard. Ahab says, I want Naboth's vineyard, but I don't know how to get it. Ahab's wife Jezebel says, accuse him of blasphemy, then you can steal his property rights and everyone will think it's okay. So they do exactly that. Naboth gets, or, uh, Ahab gets his vineyard from Naboth because Naboth is accused of blasphemy against God and executed by false testimony. What does God do? God says, Ahab, you're not going to be king. You're going to die. Your family will die. Your wife will die. Your name is essentially going to be wiped out other than to be remembered as an example of what happens to those who reject God in arrogant pride. Does God keep his word? Yes. Ahab tries to hide himself in battle and the weapon of the enemy finds him anyway. Ahab's wife Jezebel says, my beauty is going to protect me. They throw her out of the window and the dogs eat her bones. So for the person who says, God is not going to do anything about this, Look at what he did in the past. Can he do it again? And will he do it again? Yes. So what is a proper response to that? The second part of verse 14. The unfortunate commits himself to you. And even that word unfortunate, in our mind, is like this circumstance has happened by accident. I don't think that's necessarily the sense of the... Um, how do I put this? I don't think that that's necessarily the idea that David is trying to get across to us, that unfortunate in the sense of like, it just happened, it was bad luck. But it's unfortunate from the perspective of someone who is going through a hard time, through a difficulty. What is that person supposed to do? To trust God, to entrust yourself to God. To recognize that God is the helper of the orphan. What characterizes the orphan? He has no earthly ally to help him. But who can help him? God does. So what's the cry of this person who is in difficulty to God? What is David's cry? Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Break the arm of the wicked. Again, verse 12, God, lift up your hand. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked. It's not just break his arm because you know, he can still plot and scheme. It's destroy his power. Keep him from doing the thing that he wants to do that is harm against those who are following God, against those who are in difficulty, against those who are weak. Furthermore, seek out his wickedness until you find none is essentially, God, take righteous vengeance on behalf of your people. Not just drive him off into a corner from which he can rebuild and come back, but destroy his power, destroy his reach, prevent him from behaving wickedly. And we question if we should pray this. And I think we've talked about this before. I don't think we should pray this in a sense of personal vengeance, 
but I think it is right and appropriate for us to pray this in the sense of when there is evil and injustice and sin being committed in the world, to say, God, do what is right, make this right, accomplish justice for us, for others that we see. I think that's perfectly right and appropriate for us to do today. And how does the psalm finish out? I think we have to wait for God's deliverance. God reigns as king. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Here's the contrast. The wicked person thinks, I am secure. What did he say in uh, verse 6? Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. This is a correction to that perspective. God is the one who is eternal. Nations rise and fall according to God's pleasure. Furthermore, God hears prayer. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. What's the criterion for God hearing our prayer? Are we humble? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a common theme throughout Scripture. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I humble? Because I can be in a position of difficulty and I can be proud like the evil person who thinks he's getting away with whatever he wants. And there's a sense in which God perhaps will not hear me if I'm exalting myself in pride. But when I come to Him in humility, I can expect that God will hear and God will help. In what way? You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. It doesn't say that God will take away the circumstance immediately, although verse 18 implies that He will intervene. But what do we need when we're in difficulty? Uh, there's another psalm that says, My flesh and heart are weak and may fail, but God is the strength of my life, my portion forever. That's what we need when we're going through difficulty. What we think we need is, God, fix this right now. But the immediate need that we need, that we need is strengthen my heart. Hear me, you will incline your ear. That's another way of saying hear me. And then verse 18, God will bring justice in His time to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Not just victory, but vindication. Not just it's fixed, but you were right all along. The example that comes to mind with this is when uh, Paul was beaten at Philippi in Acts 16. I was just looking at this the other day. Paul was beaten at Philippi. He tells them after the fact, I'm a Roman citizen, you shouldn't have beaten me. They're like, oh no, we're in trouble now. So they try to usher him silently out of the city before anybody finds out. And Paul says, no. You recognize that what you did was wrong. You admit it. And you don't go after all these other people who are following God because you've already broken the law at least once. And so God, through Paul, uses that circumstance to protect the other believers, at least for a time, in the city of Philippi. That's what's ha talking about happening here. Not just everything's okay now, but sort of a going back and setting the record straight and saying, you did nothing wrong to begin with. That's what's happening. That's what God will do. What's the net result? So that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror by showing that the greatest of men is mortal. Again, God reigns forever. 
kings reign for a very short time. The person who's proud, who thinks nothing can touch me, what comes to every person who thinks that? They're defeated, they die. God lasts forever. So here's the question. Who are you going to put your trust in? Are you going to cast your lot in? Are you going to ally yourself with the proud, wicked person for whom life seems to be going great, for whom it seems nothing bad is ever going to touch him, but whose reign is short and whose prosperity will end? Or will you put yourself on God's side, who even though in the short term may permit you to go through difficulty and seem that he is distant and all of these sorts of things, but in the long run shows that he is eternal, that he hears your, power, your prayer, and that he has the power that he's strong to save. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. That's the question David asked himself. God will deliver the humble by judging the proud. Even though the wicked think they'll get away, even though no judgment is visible on the horizon, even though God's people may be suffering, God will judge the wicked in his time. So do we believe that? And do we wait for God to intervene? And do we plead with him to intervene in his time? So how do we pray a passage like this as we go to our time of prayer? God, in this moment or in past moments, it seemed like you were far away. Help me to remember that I still know you, that I still belong to you. God, this person seems like they are doing nothing right, but everything is going their way. Help me to see that that is short-lived and empty and that they're on the edge of a cliff that your judgment is about to fall. And you say, well, maybe it's however many years down the road, but what are a few decades to God's eternal plan? God's judgment is there. Pray that God will intervene. God, arise, help, work in this situation. Deliver me. God, help me to be humble. Because a lot of times I think I can go it on my own and I can't. Help me to be humble. God, I praise you for the fact that you have delivered your people in the past, that you can deliver them now, and that you will deliver them in the future. And there's so many other things that we could pray from this psalm, but perhaps some of those things would be a start. And so let's turn now to our time of prayer.